Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Moments, a podcast that celebrates parenthood to the fullest, the smallest victories, the messiest failures, and the bravest decisions. Today, we're talking with a comedian, actor, and writer. He's best known for his comedy specials and his work as a correspondent for The Daily Show. And... He's Henry's dad, Roy Wood Jr. I'm sure all the listeners know I am a fan of our our next guest, Roy Wood Jr. Uh, A huge, a huge fan. But you are not going to be the star of this podcast. It's going to be your son. So can you? Yeah. So you're in trouble. So can you tell me a little bit about your son? Please. He has the tenacity of me and what he hates, he hates. And there's nothing you can do that will change his mind. Otherwise, you will not get him to ever eat a damn green pea or a tomato. Not right now. At this juncture in his life, he ain't going to do it. Um, He's five. He's in kindergarten. He likes tennis, thinks baseball is boring, loves basketball. Wink, wink. I'm sure that makes him your favorite now as well. It's it's interesting, though. It's interesting. And in, I said this, I think it was to Jill Scott on something she and I were talking about a while back. And that having a child in a lot of ways, at least as a man, having a child instantly reinforms, it completely reconstitutes the relationship you have with your parents. And the things that weren't a big deal when you have a child, you go, wait a minute. My father dying when I was 16 for whatever you name it, circumstances I didn't get with my dad. So a lot of what I'm doing in fatherhood to a degree is just uh, this. This feels like fathering is just what parenting. Yeah, this seems right today. OK, this is what I'm going to do. Like. I never had, and this is so childish to say, but I grew up with night terrors, right? And I grew up in the 80s when Gremlins was, that was the shit. Gremlins. Oh, yeah. Gizmo. Yeah. Those little green bastards would come into my room and walk around my bed and they had these glowing yellow eyes and I couldn't move because it was sleep paralysis, right? And so... Like I, I came up with like my mom, like baby boy, take your ass back to sleep. And then now I have this son, and he wakes up from time to time, afraid of the dark. And I'm so empathetic with it. I'm so like, it's made me so nurturing to see him going through moments, and then kind of being what I wish I'd have had at that time. And that's not a knock on my mama. Our parents did what they did based on the playbook that they got, you know. And so. It's one of those things where now, you know, they say, don't sleep in the room with your kid. And I'm like, 
All right, I'm going to sleep in the hall so you can at least hear me snoring. <laughs> you know I'm close or whatever. But, you know, my child is by far the the best thing that ever happened to me, also the most motivating thing. I've done more in five years, or six if you count pregnancy and all of that. I've gotten more accomplished I love in it. that time than in any previous stretch of my career. Like it would have taken me 10 years to do what I've done in the past four or five. And why do you think that is? Why, why, why did that have a change before you even met him when you knew that you were having a son? Why was that such a motivating factor? I think that you have a responsibility. Like as a parent, you care more about your responsibility to others than you do yourself. If you're a good, if you're doing it right, then you have this degree of selflessness of, oh, he's got to eat. And he needs boom, 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 and boom set up before I die. All right, bet. Let me put that hour special out. All right, let me do another hour special. All right, like right now, we're on the heels of my third hour special, which is exactly two years from the previous hour special, which was exactly two years from that previous hour special, which is exactly a year after he was born. So nothing, in a way, nothing becomes enough. So... It's, it's two things I'm trying to do with my son that's on some legacy shit, like if I die tomorrow, right? It's It boils down to work ethic and how you treat people. And those are the two things that I really hope that I'm able to kind of, until he's old enough to take the lessons, kind of osmosis, you know, into him a little bit. And then, you know, and I'm blessed also, you know, to have a partner that, She's the relaxation side. She's the nature side. She's the let's go take a walk and look at the trees side. Let's go for a hike and slow down. Don't forget to slow down from time to time because I don't have that switch. Yeah, you definitely need that. You definitely need that. I want to rewind a little bit um, about your upbringing. And this makes me smile because it kind of makes me reminisce on my childhood a little bit of I'm a huge history buff. I absolutely am obsessed with history. When I would travel around the world, I would always go to like museums. We'd have shoot around. I'd go to the museum. I played in Europe. I went to every World War II battlefield, probably in Russia. I'm a huge uh, history person. And so to hear that you grew up in Memphis, Tennessee and Birmingham, Alabama, and your father was a radio broadcaster and journalism pioneer from Birmingham. What impact has that had on you? You know, because obviously people look at you as a comedian, but you're well-versed in what's going on within our country and able to have, bring comedy to a serious conversation in which you are very well-informed. And that's what I love as a, as a Daily Show fanatic. That's what I love most about The Daily Show is that you all <laughs> bring comedy <laughs> to the situation. However... You are very well informed. Um, what's wild is that I used to go with my dad on all his speaking engagements. Like my dad was a dude, like in the South, in the 80s, they would have church. And then at the end of church, they would just have some whoever they paid $200 to come up and give a speech to the church about whatever wokey woke thing was happening <laughs> in that particular week. So, you know, I remember also, you know, my father, so... Well, we were living in Memphis. We lived in Memphis until the third grade, and then we moved to Birmingham. But in that year, during the second grade, 
my dad was going back and forth to make sure. And I understood this once I got the Daily Show. Hey, y'all don't move yet. They might fire my ass. Stay where you at for a year and I'll come back and forth. Yeah. Let me make sure we good. So it was that make sure we good year. And so my mom would send me on days that we, you know, random off days from school or whatever. The Birmingham school system didn't match up to the Memphis school system. So I would get sent to Birmingham for the summer. My pops would just straight send me to send me to school. So I would get rather than pay for a babysitter. It's my cheap ass daddy. Rather than pay for a babysitter or just leave me at home. Just leave me at home, dog. I'm in the second grade. I'm grown. I can figure it out. I would get up at five o'clock in the morning with my father every day and go with him to the radio station and watch him pull the they had the AP wire printer. Hey, young people, back in the day, there was one printer connected to the Internet. It was the only device connected to the Internet and it would just print news stories. And so he would go read them all, figure out what he wanted, take his five, six stories into the control room. And I would sit with him and watch him read these news stories that were pertinent to the black community and give his commentary on them. And then at eight in the morning, Francine Palmer would come pick me up and drop me off at Kingston Elementary School over on the north side. And that's where I would stay till 3.30 when my dad did his afternoon news. And I would be right back in a radio station with his ass again. So you don't realize it at the time, but that's where you start picking up kind of a north star, you know, on some third eye open type stuff. And so, you know, the Daily Show comedy was a vehicle for me growing up because I changed school systems a lot. You know, I was never same school system for more than two years until high school. So that became the vehicle of cracking the joke and blending in. And, you know, the joke is the easiest way to be seen or disappear. So, you know, to have an opportunity, you know, and I, I, again, this comes back to my son where it's like, you know, my comedy was starting to have a little bit of shape to it. But then when you start really sitting down and looking at the world, I'm like, man, what's going on, man? Let me talk about some real shit. That's why I named my first my first special. I named it Father Figure because it was me trying to speak to my son, essentially. You know, and this isn't to sound morbid, but from the grave in the sense of. Here's some things to think about in case I die before we old enough to have these conversations. Here's where I stand on these issues, because I believe these things will still be issues for you when you reach that age. That's all it is. You know, this third one's for the streets. But that first one, <laughs> no, that was for the boy. <laughs> you know, I will say how much um, your childhood shapes, you know, and you have the analogy of like, if your parent was a workaholic, you either become your parent or you go the opposite direction. Um, and I think as kids now, where we grew up in a generation, and you said something earlier, your mom didn't, that was the playbook they had. But there's a huge topic now on generational curses and generational things that just have always been, especially within the Black community. How are you addressing those individually, as well as you know, as a father to your son, because there are so many things like now we didn't talk about money. It was one of those things where it's like, if I asked my mom how much something costs, she said, this grown folks business, mind your business. Like that was just how it was. And that was the playbook they had. But now I find my daughter like on Zillow picking out her house. (laughs) And so they always know how much stuff costs. And so like, you know, those are some of the generational things where we didn't talk about it. But now it's like we have to. 
Um, so what? Where? Where do you fall that, in the, um, in in that? Like, I mean, forget money. Talk to me about trauma and pain and emotions because we from, you know, our parents are from a generation where they're wired to suck it up and man up and. Well, at least these white folks ain't beating me, so I guess it's a good day. So I'm not going to complain. How you doing? Well, I can't complain. I can't. Yes, complain. Tell me what the hell is going on. Tell me what you're feeling. And I think that because our parents just had to survive so many days, just basic survival, just getting home, that there was a lot of emotions that were not processed, that were not shared, that were not you know, hand it down, you know, like I'll give you a perfect example. So when my son, when my son gets frustrated, like say he's trying to put a Lego together or something and, you know, it's just the end of the world and he's flailing all over the ground because the wheel won't go on the thing. And my default is say, boy, get on out of here with all that wine. And if you're going to whine, go and get on out of here. Like I go old school Alabama Deacon on him. Well, my girl. Yeah. You didn't just say Deacon. I'm sorry. <laughs> my girl hit his ass with that black woman love. Though. She goes, hey, it's okay to feel that way. But if you're going to feel that way, then you have to go and be by yourself and be in those feelings. And then when you're ready to come back and if you're ready to share, come on. And he goes and walks away. And it's a t- it's two totally different directives to go do the same thing. And so something as simple as letting him know it's all right to be aware of his feelings, man. You know, so when you talk about generational stuff, I did finding your roots, right? And so on one count, I'm the ninth of 11 children. On another count, I'm 11 of 13. It depends on whose count you respect. I'm the only child by my mom. So... There's a lot of different, when you have those types of relationships with women, there's something different, there's something broken, there's something, it's not, you know, if I'm just being honest about, you know, my father, and that's a lot of stuff we never got to talk about, because that ain't no conversation to have with a 16-year-old. So I do find in your roots with, um, with Henry Louis Gates, and I'm a man that has always carried this confliction about my relationship with my dad. Now, I've spoken about it on the road. Like, it's not news. I have to say this because I know some of my family might end up hearing this and then it gets passed around like I'm talking trash. What, I, what I'm saying is there was always this feeling of respect for the man and respect for Roy Witt Sr., the journalist, but Roy Witt Sr., the father. Once I had my son, I was like, oh, no, ooh, missed a couple spots. You missed a couple spots, bro. And I always carried that. So then I do finding your roots. And I found out something I didn't know. My father lost his father when he was four. Didn't know that. I also don't know what the stepdaddy situation was for him coming up at all. I, there is no recollection of my grandmother at any point remarrying or dating a new dude or nothing. Plus, you know, there's black women in the 50s, 60s. You know, they keep all that on the low. You ain't going to know nothing in the 40s and 50s. So who knows how him losing his father at four changed everything, you know, for him. 
and what could have played into that. And he never spoke on it. And I know he never spoke on it because ain't nobody that's still living on his side ever told me what he thought and what he felt. And I think that knowing. It's not fair to say that they failed, Candace, but. It would have it'd be nice to fucking know what potholes you ran over in your growth and matriculation into adulthood so that I can avoid them. So I could teach him how to avoid them. But you so busy being tough and just going, I'm going to let God handle it. That you never even just verbalize what the hell was going on. Nobody ever brings up that type of stuff. So, you know, I speak on the record a lot about as much as I can, because if nothing else, if, if he and I never get to have that conversation as men, my son and I, then there's breadcrumbs all over the place. For him to go and put it all together. And that's, you know, when you talk about, when you talk about money, I still don't know what to do about this boy and money because I, I have to. My buddy Tommy Jonigan said it best. He said, You can't teach poverty. And not having creates a degree of tenacity that you. Yep. Man, will you preach? Oh, my so you have goodness. To figure out please. a way to recreate that somehow, you know, and that's, that's difficult. That's very difficult. Like, how do you raise kids that have the desire to work hard to, you know, work hard, put in the time and the energy, get them to do that. Even if it's not the same thing that dad did, how do I give you the tenacity to go after whatever it was that you like, one of Your the dopest things that I saw was when, um, I don't remember which child, it might have been both, but when one of Michael Jordan's children quit basketball at uh, Central Florida. I was like, no, I don't want to do this. I want to be doing this. I'm like, that's bold. Like, that's becoming your own self. And so how do you, and that's the thing that I'm kind of teetering on now. And he has all these stupid apps that you, oh, you, you guessed all the colors and the numbers in order. Well, you get four tokens and then you get those four tokens and now you can go in the stupid shop and you can get a different colors thing for your app. You can get a new shirt. It costs $3 and it's teaching money, but is it teaching materialism? Is it like, I don't know. Yeah. Or work ethic. Yeah. Yeah. That is something that I struggle with just raising my kid is that we were by no means poor. I would not say that. Um, my dad worked very hard for us, for a family of five. But when we went to the store, it wasn't like I could just, when my mom said no, it was, you know, a lot of times we couldn't, you know? But now it's like I find myself going to the store and Layla asked for something and it's no because I shouldn't. Or, you know, I just don't want to, you know, that type of thing. So it's, it, at what point is it, how do I teach that? Um, when you said teaching the hustle without coming from poverty or coming from and also uh, that how type do you of situation. Teach it without there without attaching it as a reward system. Like we had to scale back, oh, if you do this, you'll get a treat, or if you do this, you'll get a you'll get a toy or whatever. And I asked him to do something and then he looked at me and goes, If I do that, I get a toy. I'm like, Did you just try to cut a deal for a toy? No. If you do it, you'll get the satisfaction of doing it. Sometimes doing it, that's enough. <laughs> and so 
No, not everything gets you a toy. You know, like that. Settle down, dog. <laughs> like you can't do that. So that part of it, I haven't quite figured out yet. I do know that shaming your child instead of whipping your child is working marvelously right now. It might not work when he's eight or nine. I know I'm gonna have to grab him and not whoop him, but I'm gonna have to grab him. You know, once he like 13, 14, like boys in the hood, I'm gonna have to pull a Lawrence Fishburne. Let him Trey, know. <laughs> give me the gun, Trey. Like, I'm gonna have to hit him with one of them. But for now, I'm oh my God. My son do something that I would have gotten whipped for back in the day, man. I go to my son, I just want you to know that you really let me down. And it just made me sad. Do you oh, say the yes. word disappointed? Oh, but only only in select. You can't you can't burn out. You can't use your yeah, yes. you gotta pick can't and choose. Use it. Can't use it's it. Like too. a Mario star. <laughs> like that works every time. And that works like a charm. Cause he does not want to yeah. disappoint us. He does not want to let us down. But even that becomes how do you live independent of the approval of others? And that comes later, you know, but I think that's also important, you know, at least to me. That is super important, but, but taking it a step farther as well is, you know, I find myself when I don't want her to do something, I say, you don't do something that just because everybody else does it. But then as a parent to a young child, at four, I remember saying, look at everybody else. They're sitting nicely on the carpet. And then about six years old, Layla said, so you want me to do what everybody else is doing when it's good, but when it's bad, you don't want me to do what everybody else is doing. I'm like, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, kind of. <laughs> like at six years old, these are the type of conversations that we're having, you know, with our kids. And I think it's, it's making us look more so in the mirror at the communication style, what we don't want to be like, but also what we want to be like, because I think that's important. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome to our Capital One Cafe break. Each week, we'll chat with a Capital One parent about their relationship with family and finances. Today, we're talking with Karone Vatel. Senior Vice President and Head of Community Impact and Investment at Capital One. I know your children are a little bit older, so what have you seen from the time that they were babies trying to balance everything to now? Um, what are the changes that you've seen just even in your coworkers with the way in which parenthood is approached from a balancing act of being a parent as well as balancing a career? Yeah. And I would say that one of the biggest things that's changed for me is um, really that I've learned to show myself grace because I, I, I used to set such a high bar for myself, um, which was tough on me, but I think also just set the wrong example for my kids. So just to share a little bit of a personal story, last year I got diagnosed with breast cancer in the middle of the pandemic, in the middle of an incredibly insane workload, playing tech support for the kids, cooking dinners and sitting down at 1030 at night to eat, but it was fine because we were all together. And so I, I really did have a superhero complex, but I didn't acknowledge it. And I remembered when I was diagnosed with cancer, it really broke my spirit. 
um, because there was no room on these shoulders to put another thing, no matter how big or small. And what I realized is that I was living my life with the superhero complex of no matter how hard it gets, no matter how many things are going on, we're going to get them all done and they're going to be done really well. And I'll never forget both my daughter and my son said to me, um, and it was really touching with my son because he held my cheeks and he looked me in the eyes and he said, mom, we really need you. This family really needs you. So please tell me that you are going to make sure that you will be okay. And so it was a real moment of, holy cow, you know, I need to, I actually, it is, it is so critically important that I take care of myself first. I know your kids are kind of of that age now where it is important for us as parents to establish, you know, a conversation surrounding finances. How have you taught your children to, to be responsible, you know, financially and to, to get on that path of being able to one day have generational wealth? When we were growing up, uh, you know, it, the focus was all about getting a good job. And to your point, when you talk about generational wealth, it's not about having a job. You have to think about where can you put your money so that your money is working for you while you are doing whatever is the activity that is most deserving of your time in that moment. And one of the things that's really coming to the table, and we've been having like great conversations around this as we go on vacations with our families together, is talking about investing. And so as Capital One, you know, I think we're taking a really innovative approach to the way that we think about finances and banking, and we're trying to make it so much more accessible. You know, in, in Jamaica, which is where I grew up, you, you dressed up to go to the bank, right? <laughs> like, like you were going to work. And so Capital One has just turned that model on its head with our Capital One cafes. Um, you know, there are folks uh, there to meet and greet people who come into our cafes to really talk about a whole range of topics from financial education to classic banking and other types of things. But the idea there is just to make it much more accessible. There's no one size fits all approach to achieve financial well-being. So Capital One offers plenty of resources to help people stress less about money and get on the right financial path. As a working parent, I love that their services provide both value and convenience. Things like a free credit monitoring tool, available to everyone, not just customers, and their Money and Life program that helps you plan out your goals in life via one-to-one -one mentoring, group workshops, and self-guided exercises. Capital One is dedicated to helping you spend wisely, build savings for the short-term and long-term, manage credit and debt, and handle unexpected expenses life may throw your way. Where has comedy, like, where has comedy come into this? Were you a funny kid? Because I, I think that there's a fine line that you display where comedy does not replace the realness and the rawness of what's going on. And you do it in a way that, like, you still understand the seriousness of the situation. It makes things easier to digest. You know, that's just always been my default. I, you know, I don't know where I got my sense of humor from. It's not from my parents. They're both college educators, black college graduate. Like, they are very straight and narrow. I don't think I've seen my, I don't think I ever saw my father laugh. Like, if he did, it was like with his homeboys, just telling some ignorant story. But, like, just turning on the TV. <laughs> And watch it like my dad didn't watch sitcoms. He's 
His yeah. third eye was wide open. Like you can't. Like when you that like when you've been embedded in South African riots and Rhodesian civil wars and Vietnam and the civil rights, like you can't watch good times. <laughs> you can't. It ain't in them. Um, I think that comedy was just always this. It was the easiest way to communicate with people, and then. When I started doing stand-up, I started doing stand-up when I was 19, and you perform for grown folks. And so, you know, I was 19, I was scrawny, I looked 16, so I would wear a suit so I could at least look like 21, 22, like that was my move. And when you're performing for 40-year-olds one night, 70-year-olds at a casino the next night, and then doing a hood show the night after that, you have to start finding the common denominators that connect people and the topics that, okay, what is, what are all three of those demographics all talking about? And then finding those things. And that became, that kind of created, that gave me the ability to start working my relatability muscle. You know, if I really look back to just, you know, kind of some origin, you know, some origin point, but no, I was the, I was a quiet kid, but in sports, I would say is kind of where the comedian started to emerge. I was a bench warmer in high school when I played baseball, and so the bench warmer's job, right? I mean, you know this. If you ain't if you ain't in the game, your job is to just heckle and yell. Like on the one <laughs> hand, I don't know. Maybe it's different in women's sports. I don't know, maybe it's all about upliftment and encouraging. No, okay, it's not because nope. we was yelling some ignorant shit across the baseball field and <laughs> i loved it i loved every minute of it to the point where i would write heckles in class you would prepare yes. and heckles and pass this them out to the everything team. and this is what we're going to say today and here are the very and you could tell it was getting to them it was getting to them now we wouldn't do it against city schools because birmingham city schools is all predominantly black so you better watch your mouth when you're talking to a black school <laughs> but we was playing them white boys out in the county. Oh yeah, we yelling whatever. Like <laughs> heckles so rude that they would call you the N word when you got back on the field, and you wouldn't even get mad because you knew. I just got because to you knew. I got you to. Knew. I saw what color car your mama dropped you off in, and I'm just going to yell and crack on your mama's car. Every time you come up to the plate, I'm just going to yell something about your mom. And this is pretty, uh, if we'd have had Facebook and I really would have knew your life, dog, dog. So you're telling me you did research. Like you were, this was, this is the type yeah. of passion we're talking about. This is the type of hustling we're talking about. You're writing, so, you're writing hackles. I need you so mad that you <laughs> Before a game. I need you that mad. And then, you know, you start once I got to college, I was working originally it started at Shoney's, but I perfected the strategy at Golden Corral. So I figured out as a server how to get a laugh in the first 30 seconds of interacting with someone and then figuring out whatever joke worked at one table. That's the joke I worked at every table within my section. So if you had three tables within an hour, I had three jokes. So no no table got the same joke, but we were rotating the same three or four jokes amongst all six tables. 
So each table was essentially getting my comedy set, but in a different, you know, order. Like you have the joke when you greet them, you have the joke when you bust their first plate, you have the joke when you suggest dessert, and then you have the joke when you do the final cleaning of the table as they're on their way out. And you just need, and they all need to be 30 set quick hits, pop, 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 pop. And that was kind of the building blocks of a lot of stand-up bits. Because the cool thing is that if I give you a joke and you think it's funny, most people, or at least most funny people, will try to add to the joke in the moment. It's like barbershop talk. One person say one thing, and then they say, yeah, what about a shoe? Yeah, shoe. You seen a short man? Thank you very much. I now have a full routine. Appreciate that, Table 12. It That's just, everything. Comedy became this, if I can be honest, like it, it also, you know, laughter, you can use it for bad as well. And it became this tool of manipulation as well. Because like we like I got arrested when I was 19. We stole some credit cards and we was acting a donkey in Tallahassee. And the easiest way if you wanted to do some dirt was to make the cashier laugh. And so it became this distracting tool of diffusion as well. So it's which is when you look at what's happening today with political discourse in this country. Right. It definitely feels like, you know, people are able to use humor to slip in good points. But there's also a lot of people that use them to slip in bad points and to kind of, you know, poison the water table a little bit. Because if you can get someone to laugh, you can get them to listen. And once you have people listening, you know, you just need a convincing argument to get most people on board. And, you know, most people aren't going to do homework and due diligence. They're just going to buy into the messenger. And if they like the messenger, then the message is solid with no double checking. Wow. Uh, I mean, that's super accurate, especially in today's world. I'm going to take this a little bit lighter, though, and I'm going to say parenting and comedy. Ooh. Because, you know, I always say this, the the two people that humble me the most are my mother and my daughter. My daughter does not care how many points I scored, what our show is rated. She doesn't care. I am mom. Mom, make me my pancakes. Mom, like, you know, you didn't wash my gym uniform. Mom. So as a parent within comedy, I know sometimes our kids are our toughest critics. You know, how is that balancing that? Mm. Um, My son doesn't completely know what I do yet. He gets the now a year of shooting at the house and doing the daily show remotely. He knows it's to the point now where he sees the camera on the tripod and the lights, he knows to just go get the tablet and the headphones and just, you can sit close and watch and, you know, and I've let him run camera sometimes and, you know, stuff like that. But we were on the subway one day and we walked past a daily show poster and he saw me on the poster and he just looked at it and goes, hey, there go your friends. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, the ones at work. And he goes, yeah. He's seen me like every now and then he'll catch me watching a stand up clip of myself online. I do not watch stand-up comedy around him. I try my best to not watch stand-up comedy around him. 
I, he has a natural sense of humor and I believe that that whatever his path is, I want to give him the space to find it on his own and not just let it be because of, I don't know why the boy liked tennis. I ain't never showed him. He took tennis two days in preschool and now he, so, all right, well then we're just going to watch Osaka or Stevens or whoever's black this week that's still in the tournament. Like the only thing I do in terms of influencing him in terms of his path is to show him black people doing things in all spaces so that he knows that he belongs or that it's actually plausible. The biggest issue I had coming from Alabama was that you're not around a lot of people with big dreams. So you think your dream is too big. So you don't even attempt it. You know, for me, seeing Ricky Smiley on TV really bonafide what was possible being from Birmingham. That's the first person from the crib that was like on cable and BT and was like from Kingston. I'm like, he from right around the car. Oh, maybe I can do this. I've done nothing to encourage his sense of humor. He, it's natural. Like he'll sometimes ask me, you know, why is this? Why was that funny? A joke will happen in Paw Patrol or whatever. He goes, why was that funny? And I'm trying to explain double entendres to him and, or how the first half of a syllable, you know, who's there orange? Aren't you glad that I didn't say, but like, why is that funny? Well, orange sounds like aren't. And he'll process it and go, yeah, it does. Ha 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 ha. So, you know, I, I've tried to give him, I'm going to give my son the space to discover himself on his own terms, you know, because that's the one thing, not the one, that's one thing that my mother did that, you know, if we talk about stealing from your parents' playbook, you know, for the longest time, I wanted to be a firefighter. And, you know, my mom talked to me a lot about chemistry and physics and began a fire inspector and, you know, pyrotechnic studies and all of this stuff. And she bought me all the books you can name, whatever career I remotely flirted with my mama immediately. Oh, that's no problem, baby. So that's awesome. That that that's been that's been cool. So I just kind of want to do the same thing with him. But you know what I found? It's interesting. Um, I was not against Layla playing basketball, um, but I wasn't 100% for it. Like, I wasn't the kid that, like, you know, the the parent that had the ball with the kid and was throwing it in the crib and, like, you know, doing all this stuff, but organically trying to figure out what she wants, but also not being the parent that forced her away from if basketball was her passion. Are you – I mean, you can't help but crack jokes around – your son like are you do you try not to or is that the type of relationship you know that you that you have where you tease him i can't i can't help it i cannot help it there's a youtube video that people could go pull up um i believe it's called parental post game and it's me and my son and it's my son interviewing me as a reporter during the pandemic Put that in your YouTube and pull it up. So 
when I was doing podcasts at the house and I'm holding a handheld microphone, my son picked it up and he understood the concept. When I talk, I point it at me. When I talk, I point it, when you talk, I point it at you. And so my son would just pick it up and start interviewing me. I never taught him that. I never told him to do that. And he just came up to me one day and holds a microphone in my face. He goes, are you a good daddy? And I was like, why are you grilling me like a reporter? Like, who are you? And then, ding, I remember. I watched some of the Daily Show segments, not mine, with him in the room. I watched the local news two, three times a week. So he sees reporters on the street doing the live hits. Yep. And it's just straight mimicry. And he's very funny. He's the timing's impeccable. Like I I don't know. I, I'm just I just know that I'm not gonna put him in TV or film or anything like that. Like I don't Well, we always have this nature versus nurture debate and you know, I always point to like Blue Ivy who was rapping like Jay Z on her like she was hitting every like how how you know you you know that because you you a child of the queen and you got jay as as a dad like you don't just pick that up so like being around it how is your son when people recognize you because my daughter like me kind of rolls her eyes when people come up and are like i could take you one-on-one and she kind of chuckles because she sees my reaction because that happens all the time I get people who speak to me as if they already know me, but I believe there's a familiarity in my persona that I know comes from 10 years in morning radio, where radio teaches you relatability and just how you talk and intonations and just, you know, how you hold conversations with people. Daily show people come up and if you know me from stand up, yo man, you funny, respect to the thing that you're doing, man. Good luck to your career, man. There's nothing but respect. And I wonder if that sometimes is a byproduct of the topics that I'm talking about, which is more of a hey man, keep spitting that shit moment versus man, you go fuck. Yeah. Like, I don't get that. Like, I've been out with Kevin Hart and Trevor Noah. I've seen that's two totally different. Like, I don't even want that universe. But can only imagine Daily Show fans. It's a very sincere and warm interaction where they come up and they'll shake my hand and they'll say thank you. And it's from the bottom mm-hmm. of their heart. Just, hey, I love what you all do. But more importantly, you did this piece about the thing and the thing. And just thank you. And that's the one that I don't know what to do with because I've never like. You know, like, I'm not used to good feelings. Like, why would you put this? Why would you put this in my lap? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Um, No, but I I mean, I can relate because I am a daily show addict and I think it's purposeful. I've been in the audience and I see the way that you guys interact. And, you know, it's more than, like you said, it's more than just comedy. Before I let you go. And I know this might be heavy, but... No, come on. We talked about... I told you my daddy lost his daddy at four. I I got you. Um, Black fathers within our community. You know, we've talked about this throughout this. What would be your message to other black fathers out there that are going through some of the generational realizations? That's what we'll call it. What what would your message to them uh, be? Don't stop showing up. Go to therapy if you can. 
if you can afford it, if you, if you have those opportunities and those resources. But don't stop showing up. We are all tasked with sorting out our own past while helping our kids build their future. And you got to do that at the same time. It just is what it is. But you, the more that you can sort through your own past, the more effective of a father you'll be. Because otherwise, you're just, I'm performing the position of father. Which works on some days. But that's not sustainable in the long run, you know, so, you know, you have to be present. Like it pains me now that I have to be on tour so I can get this comedy album and get this comedy special done. But comedy special also affords me a lot of the opportunities to be around and do dope stuff with them. So, you know, it's kind of a yin and a yang. But, you know, just don't beat yourself up too hard because the trick, the thing we're all trying to balance is how to be present, but also provide. And that's the, and that's, you know, the same goes for, you know, mothers, to be honest, like it's, how do I be there when the money is over there? And that's, that's the hard part, but just, just keep showing up because that's what the kids will remember. Take long walks, dine in and road trips. Cause that, those are the things that'll get burned into people's memories. You know, and and I always say, spoil your kids with experiences and not things. I think it's so important, uh, like you said, to be present. And I want, if I am going to spend money on something, it's going to be memories and experiences and and times that we can share together, as opposed to just buying a, a yeah, but also Lego. Don't take your kid nowhere too nice that they ain't gonna remember. You wait till they can remember it so you can get full credit. Picture don't mean nothing. <laughs> Take this two-year-old to Aruba. My girl wanted to go to Aruba. So I'm like, all right, let's go to Aruba. And then she's going to come talk to him the other day. Remember when we went to Aruba? No. No, he don't remember. Of course he don't remember. He was two. <laughs> and the picture we have of him in Aruba, he's horrified. It's like his first time on sand. He's barely learning how to walk. He hated it. Hated Aruba. See. <laughs> Yeah, this so, is advice so maybe, from Roy Wood Jr. Don't take your kids any place yeah, that you don't you want them to remember and you won't that, get credit. <laughs> and then next year, Aruba, we can remember it. <laughs> Listen, Roy Wood Jr., thank you so much for your time. I've always wanted to say this. Hello, it's for the culture. Hello, I said culture. I wasn't going to do it. I, I said I, I said I wasn't gonna do it, but it's it's for the it's for the culture. Yo, CP time. Uh, listen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. thank you so much. That's it for this episode of Moments with Candace Parker. Thank you so much to Roy Wood Jr. Got a question, a story, or a moment you'd like to share? Leave a voicemail at 732-889-3358. If you'd like to learn more about the show, you can follow us on Twitter at WMN Media or on Instagram at WMN.media. You can also follow me, Candace, on Instagram at Candace Parker. Moments with Candace Parker is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Maddie Foley and Brittany Martinez with help from Alessandra Tejeda. Our executive producers are Robin Roberts and Jenny Kaplan. Special thanks to our exclusive season sponsor, Capital One. Thanks again. See you later.